0: As we come to chapter 11 of Leviticus, we saw last week where the priests were uh, consecrated, the whole thing with Nadab and Abihu being struck down by the Lord with the profane fire. And we just saw like the reverence and the glory of the priesthood beginning and the Lord's presence coming upon the people and the people just being overwhelmed with his presence amongst them in time, space, and matter. And again, God's making a covenant with the nation of Israel here at Mount Sinai, has given him his law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law, the guide the nation, and the religious law. And most of what we've seen has been, so far, religious law. And now we get into the law concerning food uh, allowed and not allowed and various other things. And as we come to the foods allowed and foods forbidden, foods clean, foods not clean, animals clean, animals unclean, and it's important to understand that we get the New Testament interpretation of all this Because there in Acts chapter 10 and 11, when the gospel expands, the good news to the local church expands from the Jewish believers to the full Gentile believers. Because Jesus said that the church would be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, first in Jerusalem to the Jewish believers, then Judea and Samaria, which were kind of mixed ethnic, ethnic believers with a Jewish background, to all people, to the Gentiles, that that was revolutionary because for 1,500 years, it had just been this, the covenant with the Jews and God. And everyone was outside that covenant, all the other nations who were devoid of God and the knowledge of God and the things of God. And so when that happened as the church expanded, God gave, Jesus gave actually Peter that vision of the unclean animals saying to eat those unclean animals. And in that revelation, Peter realized that those unclean animals represented the unclean nations, and that now it was acceptable to eat the unclean food, not because it's about food and what goes into a person, but it's about the people, and that now the good news of what was entrusted to the Jewish nation for 1,500 years is now available to all people because the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. So with that background, we're going to be talking about that tonight, but it's important to lay that framework before we read all this, because you're like unclean, clean, clean, unclean. It's very important, and there's a reason for it. And there's more to it than just what I just covered. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 11. My title says, Foods Permitted and Forbidden. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. That'd be like a cow, right? Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud, or those that have a cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine or pigs, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever is in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all that is in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that moves in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon, after its kind. Every raven, after its kind. The ostrich, the short-eared owl. The seagull, the hawk, after its kind. The little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl. The white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron, after its kind. The hoopie, and the bat. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you shall may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours. Those which have joint legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat. The locust after its kind. The destroying locust after its kind. The cricket after its kind. And the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven hoof or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that goes on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any carcass or dead body shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. It is unclean to you. These also shall be unclean among you, the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the lizard, large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean till evening. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. So whether it's on any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack or whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water and and it shall be unclean until evening, then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, you shall break, and whatever is in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls becomes unclean, any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean, and everything in which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether it's an oven or a cooking stove, it shall be broken down, for they are unclean, and it shall be unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern in which there is plenty of water shall be clean, but whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean. And if a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed which is to be sown, it remains clean. But if water is put on the seed and if part of any such carcass falls on it, it becomes unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. He also who carries it Carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. And you shall therefore consecrate yourself, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters of every creature that creeps on the earth, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So there it is, Leviticus chapter 11, and... It's interesting that even as God did different things, different covenants, because he had a covenant with Adam, then he had a covenant with, you know, Noah, he had a covenant with Abraham, then the Mosaic covenant. He made a couple individual covenants, like the one with Phineas. And then, of course, now as the church, we're in the new covenant, which is the everlasting covenant. There's no covenants that replace this. All previous covenants were shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And so when Christ at the Last Supper took the, the bread and the cup and he said, this is a new covenant, And we're told in the New Testament that it's the everlasting covenant. And as God gave progressive revelations with these covenants, moving different timelines of humanity from the dawn of creation there in the garden, he gave incremental revelation to different generations. Which is interesting because we're actually told parenthetically that in the last days, knowledge will go to and fro over the face of the earth. Daniel, God prophesied through Daniel that that the last generation that exists before Christ comes to rule and reign, that knowledge will be at its fullest increase in capacity. And even if you study human history, there's different times where like incredible amounts of knowledge was moving at the same time, and things were being unveiled to humanity, like you know Isaac Newton and Kepler and these guys were alive at the same time, like 1640 to, or actually like 1560 to like 1640, they're some of the greatest uh, bowler and all these guys, they're the same time. They showed the plan at the same time for about an 80-year period where all of our modern sciences and the founding fathers, all who were creationists, by the way, made great discoveries, including Sir Isaac Newton. There's just different times that God does different things with different people for different purposes. And again, Paul said in Acts 17 that he's got a different plan, but he's predetermined the plans of when we live, our generations, our ethnicity, our gender, and who we be and what he wants to do in our timeline. That's there in Acts chapter 17. But it's a point of a time for all men to be uh, step in eternity and be judged by the one whom he's entrusted all things to, which is Jesus Christ. So as we think about the dietary law, what's fascinating to me is, in the garden before sin, everyone was vegan. There was no death. None at all. Zero. Zero death. No death. And everyone, everything was an herbivore. Of course, we covered this in Genesis about a year ago. Just, everyone was an herbivore humanity was herbivores all the animal kingdom was herbivores but when sin happened and death entered we know that the animals many became carnivorous and began to attack and kill one another and things that kind of repulse us initially well you know how I say flies must die like I'll save spiders and all these other things and I'm like hey look at you guarding the front door you know like uh but flies must die and for whatever reason the flies have started to kind of come back maybe they have in your neighborhood but it's about that time of year and zip uh Clementine, my granddaughter, was in the uh, kitchen this morning. And we've had people working on, a, on the bathroom. So flies have been coming in a little bit here and there. And I saw a fly. And I grabbed that fly swatter. And, but she was chasing it innocently. And I took a swipe at it. And she didn't really see me get it. And I was like, well, that fly can't die. Because in Clementine's world, it's just a living creature. And she's following it through the kitchen. Right? And the cavaliers, if you don't know, cavaliers chase anything to flies. So Fitz and Lucy are going after the fly. And I was like, well, all flies must die except that fly. But see, to the pure, all things are pure. And for my granddaughter, who's 18 months, like a fly is a fascinating thing. It's a living creature flying around the kitchen. And there was a time when they served their perfect purpose. I'm not sure what their purpose is now, but they did. And as an herbivore world before sin. But after sin, we know that man became so evil and so violent that his thoughts and intents are always evil perpetually, and God judged the world, the global flood. And it's before they got on the ark, God gave Noah provision for food from animals. Then after they got off the ark, God said, now look, eat these animals. These animals are good for you to eat. So he said that he could eat the animals when they came. So when the Noahic covenant began, so remember the first covenant with no sin, herbivores. And then this time period, about 1500 years after the flood from the dawn of creation, where they come off the ark and God says, okay, Noah, you and your sentence, you can eat all these things. Well, then you have the Abrahamic covenant with no dietary specifications that we know of. And then you have this now, the Mosaic Covenant, which is about a thousand years from a post-flood world. Okay, so so for a thousand years, pretty much eat whatever you want to eat. And as we get into the heart of the Book of Leviticus, and we see how the Canaanites lived and the things they did, which many things are just completely vile and vulgar in their idolatrous worship, given over to depravity, the things that Paul described in Romans one that they're just completely given over to debased mind, darkened hearts, and all these things. So in that thousand year period you could eat whatever you want to eat, and now as God's making a covenant with the nation of Israel, which is primarily twofold. You can maybe say even threefold. First thing is that He's given them the scriptures, right? Like the Jews were entrusted with the scriptures. Thus the holy men of God spoke as God led them, and they were led. So the Jews were entrusted with the scriptures and the New Testament makes that clear. But then we also know that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come through the Jews. So the scriptures give us the line and link of all events moving toward Jesus Christ coming. And then we also know that the nation was set aside to be a witness to the, na- uh, the nations. So the nation of Israel was meant to be a witness to the nations. So like, for example, when the Queen of Sheba comes and sees Solomon's wisdom, she goes, man, you've surpassed even what I heard was greater than that. And there's no people like your people and the God you serve. So they have threefold thing. And it was about distinction, that they were distinct and different. In fact, God warned them, and we'll see this as we get deeper into Leviticus, that as they come into the land, they don't live like the Canaanites, and they don't do what the Canaanites do. The, the Canaanites did very vile, vulgar things, and we're going to have to read about it as we get deeper in Leviticus. But right now, it's just about the animals. So we know that these sequences happen with animals where God says, now, you can't just eat anything you want because you're separate to me. You're set apart. And even as your nation is set apart from these other nations and you have distinct different things and standards than they do, so too with your dietary law. But again... When God revealed to Peter, that leader of the church, to eat all animals, it was God's way of communicating to Peter and his world and how he thought that the good news of the gospel wasn't limited to just Jews, but for all people. So for every creeping little um, insect or, you know, a crow or a seagull eating something gross at the beach at Huntington Pier, or a centipede running down the backside of your fence when you lift a rock, all the things that seem gross, in essence, they're symbolic of humanity devoid of God. And so when Jesus gave Peter the vision to eat these things there in Acts chapter 10 he's like, "Whatever does it mean?" And then when he came to the house of Cornelius, a full Gentile Roman, he says, "Ah, now I understand the vision. God told me doubting nothing and salvation's for everybody, centipedes and seagulls." In other words, people that you know are unclean, the gospel's for everybody. And so that's the deeper meaning behind the clean and unclean. And by the way, we're also told in the New Testament in 1 Timothy that all things can be eaten with thanksgiving. So even in the New Covenant, the green light opens up that, you know, if you want to eat scallops, eat scallops. You want to eat catfish? (laughs) Eat catfish. It's like, it's not, like Jesus said, not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of them. So that's the background to this dietary law. But there's some interesting things that are worth pointing out in application. The first one is this. There's just two types of things. They're clean or they're unclean. Did you get that? Like, is clean or unclean. This you can eat. This you can't eat. Now let's go back to the Garden of Eden. There's two trees. There's a tree that's a tree of life. And this is a tree. And you can eat from any tree of the garden. There's a tree of life. But you can't eat of this tree. This is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree that's the flashpoint of whether or not you're going to believe in me and trust in me and obey me. And, you know, God said the day you eat from this tree, you'll die. And they, being superhumans, had no cognitive understanding of what dying meant. And as I've said many times, I'm sure when they first really saw death, you know, the the ugliness of one animal devouring another, like some dinosaur attacking a cow or something, just be like, oh my goodness, it's so repulsive, naturally. Or when Cain killed Abel, and that's death. A human being you love dying, being killed by another human being you love, like that's when you understand how far-reaching that was. But initially, those two trees were there, and they're the tree of choice because we are self-determined. Yet God's sovereignty is over us. So the trees are there. These are the choices. And you can do this or you can do that. And that's the way it works. But we're self-determined. We all make choices. And they made choices. But in Adam, all sin and die. In Christ, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? So when we choose Jesus, we have the choice that takes us past the curse and to all the blessings. But here we see, and sometimes God gives an explanation or a little more detail Sometimes you do not give as much detail. Kind of like your parents. Hey, I said you can't go to your friend's house for that party. Well, why? Sometimes your parents go, because those people have been suspended from school three times, you know, and they've already been at juvenile hall twice. Like, good things don't happen with those people. Or it could be like, because I said so, right? Like, sometimes your parents give you a further reason, sometimes not. And the Lord does the same thing. Sometimes he gives us more details, sometimes not. He gives some pretty good details in this chapter about things that are forbidden and not forbidden and... If you want to break it down, you want to break it down to which insects you can eat? Okay, he'll break it down for you. It, you know? like. But there's a distinction between what is acceptable and what is not. Let's make that clear. When you receive this law in covenant as an Israelite in 1500 BC at Mount Sinai, you would know very quickly, I can eat the cow, but I can't eat the pig. It'd be that simple. And you see, like, why a cow and not a pig? Well, because the cloven hooves there, but they don't chew the cud. Like, God doesn't have to give you that detail. Dad, really? Why can't I? Because the pig doesn't chew the cud. Well, he's got a cloven hoof. He's halfway there. He goes to church with his parents. Well, kind of church, right? See what I'm saying? God gave him details. It's like, yeah, Well, So the camel, he's got a cloven hoof, but you know, he doesn't chew the cud. Or you see what I'm saying? Like, I appreciate that. I love when God gives details. Like I'm gonna walk you through this. This is why. So in case when you go back to your tent in the tribe of Naphtali, and you're like, well, I'm not sure about the camel thing, because I look at that camel thing, that camel can eat a, feed a lot of people. So in case you want to know why you can't eat a camel, God's like, here's a little bonus for Jacob down there. Tent number three on the fourth boulevard, just past, you know, Zebulun, when you hang around in the village of Naphtali, the tent city, right? He gave him details. But it's still distinct. Yes no. Right? Yes, no. Now, in my Bible, I got blue for everything that's a yes, and pink for everything that's a no. I use my highlighters that way. So, yes, these are the animals you can eat, verse 2, that are on the earth. Yes, you can do this. Sure, you can go to that. Sure. That's how, yeah, sure. Is what you can eat from the water. Whatever has fins and scales, the sees the river, you can eat it. This is your See, we often think about what God doesn't let us do or let us have as opposed to what he does have for us. But God is good. And everything he has for us is for our good. And if in this covenant he says, this is the things that come out of the river you can eat, that's good. But why is it people are like, well, how come I can't eat that carp? Well, for one, carp doesn't taste good. But if you, you know, my mom grew up in Cleveland, right? And, you know, Cleveland's Lake Erie, the mistake by the lake, as they always say. And about the only thing that lives in Lake Erie these days is carp. And my mom grew up where when someone was kind of like a, kind of a sleazeball person, they call them a carp. Ah, that person's a carp. You know, growing up in the 50s, that's so what my mom would say. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're a carp, you know. They're, or what, the other term she'd use, uh, she's a bottom dweller, right? The, the idea is just unclean, a bottom dweller. But even so, don't eat it. It's forbidden. Now, then again, the insects, these kind, the legs are like this. Yum, yum. John the Baptist. Man, God always had a snack back in the desert, right? Love the grass. Yeah, you know, it's like, I don't know. I I just have no interest in eating insects. But I say, they say when you're starving to death, you'll eat just by anything. So maybe, I hope I never know, but you never know. But these you may eat, it says there in verse 22. These you may eat. So God gives up. But then he says, you cannot, this is an abomination. And he gives the because, because, because on the first part. And then he says, "This, this is this abomination. It's an abomination to you. Well, how come I can't go to the party? My friends can go to the party. Well, they can go to the party, but for you it's an abomination. You can't go to the party. How come they can work there, but I can't work there? Because it's an abomination for you, and don't worry about what I have for them. So, I just, what really stands out to me when I look at this what you can eat, what you can't eat for me, the most basic application is focus on what God says you can do, and what is entrusted to you, and what He has for you, and run with that as opposed to what he doesn't have. Even when it comes to marriage in the New Testament, it says, if you're married, be content and be really good at what you're supposed to be in your marriage. If you're single, you don't need to seek someone else, but he who's single is married to the Lord. In other words, whatever place you're in, that you can find contentment in it and be fulfilled in that, who you're meant to be. It's just that principle, like, this is what God does have for you, so embrace that and fulfill that, and this isn't what God has for you. And be the best you can be with what God's entrusted to you and what he has for you, that's the gospel of grace, working in our life by the power of the Spirit, in whatever case it is. I don't know why it is, but so often we think, we don't look at what God has given for us and what he has set apart for us, we tend to look at what he doesn't have for us and what he's forbidden from us or whatever. And some of you, the more kids you have, the more likely you have at least one kid that wants to figure out why they can't eat a catfish and scallops under the Mosaic law. Because God said so. But, you know, they'd, some just want to, like, well, you know, like, I just kind of, you know, and they get near the scallops and, like, hmm, scallops smell good when they're being fried. You know, like, w- I don't know why that is. But it's in our nature. Stick to the tree of life in our timeline. And whatever God asks for us in our timeline, our covenant, says it's good, it's good. If he says it's bad, it's bad, and stay away from it. But if coming to the overall context of food. Eat what you want. Just give thanks. Now, another thing that we see here in this chapter, so I talked about Peter and all that, so you understand that contextually. Uh, in this latter part of verse 45 where it says, I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And this was after, this is all, all the context about touching dead things. And, you know, there were a lot of details here. It's like you don't pick it up, you don't touch it, don't touch it, don't pick it up, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. Isn't it funny with little kids too? Isn't that the test of every toddler? Don't touch. Right? Brian Jameson talked about his daughter Trinity was his example for years. Who's now with the Lord. How that was her act of rebellion, that she was the one who would always want to touch. What he said, don't touch. Don't touch. You know, it's like, no toca, right? Just don't touch. And here's... a. 25 plus verses, don't touch, don't touch, it defiles you. And how often something that we touch defiles us, right? What is the second part of this chapter all about? Being defiled by what we touch. Things that are dead. Things that are dead that defile us. And again, going back to the New Testament, we see things like, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. There are things that are like kryptonite to us, you know, using the Superman analogy, where Superman kryptonite, he'd touch it and it would take all his energy away. And there are things that we, if we touch, they're they're death. There are certain people, we say of certain people that they're toxic. That's a term that's pretty prevalent in the last 10 years. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, they're toxic. It's a toxic relationship. That's a toxic job. That's a toxic environment. You might say it's dysfunctional. It's unhealthy, but toxic's a word that we use. And... You touch these dead animals, physically, it's toxic. I'm sure there's hygienic elements to it, and having researched some of this, there's, there's a lot of support for why it's, you know, obviously you touch a dead animal, you, you wanna wash your hands, right? You wanna do certain things, and you see all that here, but even like when the dead lizard falls in your pot, it defiles it, right? You, if it's a bowl, you gotta wash it. If it's a, a disposable vessel, you gotta chuck it. And just death defiles this way. That's the beauty of Jesus Christ, by the way. Of course, what he touches, he brings life, right? So death or life, but Jesus brings life. But we, we need to consider these examples of not to touch to touch or you're unclean contextually, historically, and we're talking about medically and hygienically, but there's more to it. And again, this is why when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he said, you know, I would ne- normally never come into your house because I'm a good kosher guy, and I would, your house is defiling me. It's like touching the dead animal. It's like picking up the gecko after he fell in my picnic bowl, you know, of nachos and cheese. It's like, oh, I can't go in your house. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, what do the priests and Levites do? Well, they, they go around the person, and the despised Samaritan, who they never want to be near, is the hero of the story that Jesus taught. When Jesus went through Samaria he was taking the shortcut and had the divine appointment, of course, with the woman at the well. And the apostles were very surprised by that. The Jews would literally go, for, if this is north, this is the Sea of Galilee, they'd hang a left turn at the bottom, their left turn going south to Jerusalem, and they'd go to the Jordan Valley and go about 10 miles this way out of the way and then way around, another 10 miles, it's a climb, by the way, up to Jerusalem, about 3,500 feet um, elevation, to go around the much shorter path because they didn't want to be what? defiled. They didn't want to be defiled. They felt like they're defiled when they came through that city. And again, in the context of Leviticus, God doesn't want them defiled by the lifestyles, the standards, and the things of the people that they're coming in to take the land from. We're going to get a lot more of this as we get deeper into it. But this whole idea of being defiled, you touch it, you're defiled. You carry it, you're defiled, you're defiled. So then he says, Lest you be defiled by them. And it's really not about being so much defiled by the animals, because the bigger picture, as we get into chapter 19 and 20 and start grinding the heart of Leviticus, the bigger picture is being defiled by the idolatry and the sinful, blasphemous lifestyles of the people. And he said, You don't make a covenant with them, you make an agreement with them. It, they just have to be gone, completely gone, because you won't rectify them. They will destroy you, like Paul says in the New Testament. Bad company corrupts good morals. So that's the context. And then God says, you shall be holy, verse 45, for I am holy. And this verse, holy means, you know, set apart. It's the character of God, right? God is light and him is no darkness at all. Moral light, whatever things are true, virtuous, praiseworthy, honorable, noble. Think on these things because these are the things of the character of God. God is light. And him is no darkness at all, morally. Everything that God does is good, just, perfect, and true. And holiness is a way of describing who he is and his character, how he thinks, and everything he does. Everything in this universe, even in a fallen universe, and all the promises moving toward the return of Christ, have holiness written all over them. When we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's the Holy Spirit. So the character of Christ is what's going to overflow from our life if we're spirit-filled men and women. It's the holiness, it's the character. It's not just a dunamis power, but there's a holiness of character that goes with it. So it's not like we can just move mountains, but it's the character of Christ that goes with it. And so this verse, interesting enough, is quoted in the New Testament in 1 Peter, where Peter's talking about when we give our life to Christ that we're a new creation, and he says that we don't, we don't run in the dissipation and the sin and the vileness of our previous lives before we came to Christ, but we're to be holy for he who calls us holy. And he directly quotes this passage right here in the New Testament. He takes this verse and applies it to the church, us, tonight, to be holy, that we aren't defiled. And so it's a reminder for us tonight, the church, about what our standards are, our thinking. Our standards are God's word. He's given us word that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work and not be moved to the left or to the right, By society or society redefining what's right or wrong, gender or anything like that. Like we're so defiled and we're so crazy right now that people you think could think straight aren't thinking straight at all. And honestly, we all know it's kind of crazy out there. It's out here right now. It's crazy. Like you just—it's crazy. Like, but the Bible tells us in Romans one that if we reject the truth and we don't walk in the light of the Lord and pursue the things of the Lord, that we can just be completely given over to insanity and madness. And, and go crazy, and it feels like that's what's going on around us right now. In fact, I mentioned this Saturday night, but it says there in 2 Thessalonians, at the end of the age, with the Antichrist, that he's called the lawless one, so the planet's going to move toward lawlessness, and that lawlessness abounds, and that people reject the truth, so God gives them over to a delusion. And I've often thought of that as being for after the time of the church, where the Lord comes for his church, and then he just lets the whole planet go pretty crazy for seven years until he comes back to establish his kingdom. But I must say, in watching events in 2020, I can't help but wonder if we're not seeing something of this nature at this point. I mean, it's madness. Some of the insanity where right's wrong, wrong is right. It's just, there's no compass for most people. But you see, that's what you get when you reject God's word. Do not be defiled. God does not change, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So who he is, his character, his plans, his promises, what he's done, what he's going to do, it doesn't change. Societies change. Cultures change. Something that fascinates me is how many cultures in the world were once the greatest cultures in the world. Like Mongolia, for example. We don't think much about Mongolia at all. Mongolia was like the superpower of the world for like two centuries. I mean, they just rolled through Russia, stomped them, rolled to Europe, put a beat down on the dramatic people, and they just ruled everything for like two centuries. Genghis Khan. But where's Mongolia now, right? I mean, I never understood why the Russians felt like they had to destroy the Poles at the end of World War II until I realized, I started to know my Russian history. Man, the Poles, they've been punishing the Russians for centuries. You wouldn't think of, like, the Baltic states having a superpower over Russia, but there was a time when the Latvian Empire was stronger than the Russian Empire. Or how about the Dutch, when the Dutch ruled the seas? When's the last time the Netherlands ruled the world? The Netherlands ruled the world in the late 1600s. They were the superpower, King Louis the France couldn't take him. He couldn't take Amsterdam. They, they were a superpower, but they came and went. Man comes and goes. And just, you you look at things and how they play out, and you look at just I just I can't help but think about all this stuff that's happened before us, and where there's a greatness and then there's a loss of it, right? But Jesus doesn't change. And the glory of man is the grass of the fields. It grows, it withers, and it fades away. So where's Genghis Khan? Where's Peter the Great? Where's, where's King Louis, the son? S-U-N, they called him the Sun. King Louis ruled everything 150 years before Napoleon tried to conquer everybody. Like, they come and they go. And we're here. And God hasn't changed. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He has not changed. His character hasn't changed. And he says, be ye separate. Be holy for I am holy, and the kingdoms come and go. So whatever's going to happen with our kingdom, we may come, we may go. But the church doesn't change. So whether we wake up in Bangladesh today as a believer or in Orange County today, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. And we don't touch what's defiled. And no matter what governments are calling progressive in society or whatever, or what pseudo-intellectualism thinks about humanity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. So we can't be moved. Because what the devil's really trying to do is move us, the church, from a firm foundation of sanctification and holiness in the Lord and understanding his character and his culture and abiding in it and reflecting it. He wants us. It Doesn't it seem like it would be so much easier just to quit and roll over and just go crazy like everybody else? Sometimes it feels that way, at least to me. Am I the only one that thinks like that? Like, you just feel like you're resisting darkness every day, resisting evil every day, resisting lies every day. And it just wears on you and beats you down. But, no, Paul said, having done all, stand, be steadfast and movable, always abound in the work of the Lord. God is holy, and he's not going to change who he is. His kingdom's a holy kingdom. And in the last couple of chapters of the Bible says, what's outside is cowards and everything that offends and is abominable and defiling is not in his kingdom. So we just got to hold the line and we need to be true to the character of Christ in our lives. Personally, the New Testament says, be holy for I am holy. And what was true for them under this covenant with these foods is true for us with lifestyle and character in our timeline and who we are at this time for such a time as this. And that's just the way it is. Now, chapter 12 is a very short chapter. It's only eight verses. So let's read this chapter, and there's a little bit of application to close out the night. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification thirty-three days. That's a total of forty for a male child. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as is the customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification sixty six days. So that would be eighty days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has borne a male or female. And if she's not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she, shall, she will be clean. Now, this is one law for sure we know has huge benefits in the hygienic elements. And so you can Google this online. But there's a lot of uh, background to this that when you isolate a woman that's given birth... And a baby that they should be set apart, and you don't want all the women having given birth together in the same area, and that you do want the mom and the baby set aside, and that time. And you know, we see even in our society, like especially in church, when women in our church have had children, I don't expect to see them for you know, sometimes it's a couple months because you've had a baby and you know, you're set apart. There's the bonding of the mom and the baby, the various things that happen in the first few weeks with the nutrients and all that stuff, and just establishing that. And it's to be set apart. And so you can Google on your own uh, some of the, if you just Google this passage, you'll find information, especially in the Jewish traditions of how back, you know, 150 years ago, especially and even now in like third world countries, that it's really important when the women have babies that they separate them from the rest of society. It's for the better health of the children have a much higher expectant rate to make it as opposed to not. And by the way, when you look at going back two, 300 years and beyond the death rate, the mortality rate of infants was so high, really, really high. And if you study, like, the British monarchs and the French monarchs and the Russian monarchs and others, like, you just see, like, they would have so many children, you know, 10, 12, 15 children, hope, like, they'd have one male that could succeed to the throne of the Romanovs or, you know, that type of thing. Because the infant mortality rate was so high. Because the exposure to germs and the way it went was nowhere near the knowledge that we have with modern medicine. So there is some definitely hygienic stuff in this chapter. It is interesting that for a male child, it's 40 days. For a woman child, it's 80 days. And I don't really have a, you can get various conjectures on that. But I think maybe because women bring men into the world and they got to do the double duty because the sons of Adam come through women and even the New Testament talks about that. But I really don't know. But I will tell you this, in Luke chapter 2, after Jesus was born, we're told that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple And he was circumcised on the eighth day, according to this chapter. And he was dedicated in the temple, according to this chapter, exactly as was. And they didn't bring a lamb. They brought the turtle doves, which means they brought the poverty offering. We know from the offering that Joseph and Mary brought for Jesus when they fulfilled this passage of chapter 12 of Leviticus, that they brought the one that would reflect their economic stature as being very impoverished. So there they were, newlyweds probably teenagers and they did the best they could which goes back to what i always say there's never enough money to get married there's never enough money to have children and there's never enough money to go for it in ministry so you might as well do all three as the lord leads and guides you and that's why chuck didn't want me counseling premarital at calvary Costa mesa but uh you know but i i found that to be true and so there's joseph like joseph and mary and they don't have enough money to buy just the most basic bring the most basic offering for Jesus. But Jesus came into the world the king of kings uh, lowly, you know, and he, he is born was in a place in a manger. And he's the one king that was presented on, the, on a donkey's colt instead of the the white conquering horse in his first coming. Like Jesus was all things to all men and Paul chose to become all things to all men because the common people heard Jesus godly and Jesus relates to anybody and everybody. There's no virtue in being poor and there's no virtue in being rich, but Jesus died for all. And that's why in Galatians it said, rich and poor, free, slave, Jews, Scythian, woman, male. Jesus died for all. And just even here in reading this chapter, we're reminded that as Jesus fulfilled the law, as his parents fulfilled the law of God on his behalf, in his dedication, that it really speaks to us with the interpretation from Luke showing us this, that Jesus came from the most humble abode. And it's encouraging to me. It's encouraging because when you read books and history books about great kings with great wealth, they, you know the, they, they kind of looked down on the serfs and they looked what they could get from the serfs and the pheasants. Jesus humbled himself to the lowest point to become a human being, the Son of God, who holds the universe together. And not only that, he humbled himself to become the servant of all. And not only that, he died a public crucifixion for a capital offense. For the wages of sin for all of us in this place tonight. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? And then he tells us, let in there in uh, Philippians, let this mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus who did these things. So, as hard as it is to humble ourselves and to take the lowest, lowest position, there was a lot to be said to be learned in the lowest position. So, the offering of the two turtle doves that Jesus' parents brought, it says a lot to us about how much we learn when we know the full scope of humanity. If you only knew Ivory palace, you could not relate to all people. Think about this. I I marched in parades with Team USA. And I've marched in parades with Great Britain. And I've marched in parades with Team Chile. All these different experiences in the human experience that I've been able to have. Paul said, I've learned to abound, I've learned to abase, and I've learned in all things I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if the turtle dove offering for, for the purification of the newborn is the best we got, that's fine. That's why the Lord set it up. Because it's not about the wealth, it's about the heart. So it's just a reminder to us that to keep things humble, keep things real, just to be servants, and to know that God meets everybody where they're at, and he is for everybody, and to not lose sight of that. And that's challenging right now. But we need, we need to just keep our eyes focused on that Jesus Christ came for all. That we we see humanity the way God sees humanity, with compassion and empathy and brokenness. And I speak for myself. I speak for all of us. Christ died for all. So let us be humbled by the two-turtle-dove offering of his parents. and, And let it just teach us humility and the way of Christ as well.